Good morning. Let me pray for us. God, you're terrific. We're so glad to be in your presence. We're so glad to have the opportunity to hear from you, to experience you, and we pray that that would happen. Don't, don't let us miss anything you have for us here. Keep our eyes open, our hearts open to get just everything that you have in store for us. In your name, amen. Well, as some of you know, before I became a pastor, I was trying to make it in a job where almost no one makes it. I was trying to make a living as a playwright. Um, before I began that challenging venture, I ran across an article that tried to list how many playwrights there were in the entire country, entire United States of 300 million people or thereabouts, who were making a living just as a playwright. Didn't have another job, but playwriting covered their expenses. Do you, any guesses on what that number might be? A robust 10. There were 10 people in the country making a living, according to this article, just as a playwright. Now, you would think that would have persuaded me that maybe I should try something different or, you know, have a different approach to my artistic interests. But nonetheless, despite those bleak odds, I gave it a shot. I, uh, I did get some good productions and at least one play that had some very kind things said about it and sold very well. But still, uh, the stats given in that article stayed with me uh, because I wasn't making a living at it. And short of some big, major, supernatural kind of break, it wasn't clear how that was ever going to change for me. And one day I was praying about all this, and I thought about this hugely successful playwright, one of the ten who was most certainly making it, who was a multimillionaire as a playwright. And uh, I was filled with envy. You know, what must it be like to be this guy? This guy actually wrote plays in the same genre as, excuse me, as I figure out how the headset works here, in the same genre as the plays I was writing. So he was sort of like a, a person, obviously, way ahead of me, but he wrote plays sort of like mine, but was a multi-millionaire. He knew that whenever he wrote a play, it would certainly get a Broadway production and most likely get picked up for the movies. And I just saw, I was just filled with envy. What, what's it like to be him rather than me? And suddenly I was, I was actually up praying as I was filled with envy about this. And uh, I felt sort of God break in and say something, as best as I could figure out, surprising to me. Um, I felt God said, Dave, are you crazy? This guy if he had any sense, would trade places with you in a heartbeat. And I just thought, well, that seems unlikely, given that I'm eating, like, ramen at way too many meals. I can't imagine how that's possible. But I felt as though God said, you should know, Dave, this guy is miserable almost every day. He's on his fourth wife, which was true. Um, he doesn't know me. He's miserable almost all the time. You are way better off than he is. Believe it or not, that prayer experience was sort of a turnaround for me. Um, along with being sort of a shock. I thought, you mean it wasn't true that there were people out there who were better off than me in every respect? That seemed like a whole new way of thinking. Suddenly, I became able to be a little bit more present, at least, to my actual life, to believe that just maybe God would come through for me in the areas that were the most important. Although clearly it would require some willingness uh, to wait and hang in there on my part. It's amazing how tempting this is to covet someone else's circumstances in life, or I suppose to covet the cool stuff that somebody else has, even when the cold facts of the matter might be that their life feels a lot worse to them than our life feels to us. Um, for instance, I think of uh, the Old Testament, of God's people, the people of Israel. In this exodus, they took out of slavery in Egypt through a desert to this rich land of milk and honey, this promised land that God had promised to give them. 
Throughout this journey through the desert, they loudly complained that they were better off in slavery, that they missed it, that they wanted to go back and be slaves. They were fantasizing, coveting slavery. And it seems to me that God has to tell me that I do the same thing again and again and again, that I'm often bitterly envious of things that are in fact slavery. Well, we're in the sixth and last week of a fun series we've done on one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, the so-called Ten Commandments that introduces all of Moses' law of God. Uh, It's from Exodus 20. And here's how the Ten Commandments end. It's on your program. They say, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We've talked so far about how so many of these commandments at first blush seem either strange or overly obvious, uh, but how when you sit with them for just a minute, you realize how these ten things are actually intended to be building blocks of the kind of life that you want to live. And today's commandment, you shall not covet, actually serves the interesting role of being perhaps the clearest point of connection in the whole Bible, believe it or not, with other world religions. That one little verse, that one point of connection sort of as a pinhole that opens up into the way uh, so much of the world thinks about what we're up to in life. So if you'll Forgive me just a beat of talking about another religion for a moment. I wonder if that will take us somewhere helpful on the Bible's terms actually as well. So you can make a case, it seems to me, that Buddhism is based in large part on this insight right here. Coveting there, as I understand it, is seen not just as one of many sins or problems that we all struggle with, but as the primary cause of misery for all of us, as the key thing that we need to address in our entire life, this one point. Uh, As I understand, to whatever degree I understand Buddhism, the Buddha's diagnosis of the human problem is that we all face the gap between what we want and what we have. And that this gap between those two things is the fundamental problem of everyone's lives. You solve that gap, you solve pretty much every issue in your life, as I understand my limited understanding of Buddhism. There are two ways, the Buddha says, to close the gap between what you want and what you have. Um, The first is to get it, to fulfill your desires, uh, to close the gap by getting it. His point is that all of world history has tried that plan. Everybody tries to close the gap by getting what you want, and that what you discover is that it always fails. It never works. You either succeed in closing the gap and getting what you want, and discovering all world history teaches, says the Buddha, that uh, the result is disappointment and misery always. It never makes us feel like we thought we would feel if we could just get that good stuff. We thought it would make us happy, and it never does. So I could become the fabulously successful playwright, and I would discover what he discovered, that it didn't give me what I'd hoped it would. Um, and then I would despair. Or, if I got what I wanted and it didn't make me happy, maybe I would reset my goals. Maybe I would think, oh, my problem was I had the wrong goals. If I just have new goals that I don't have, if I got them, I'm sure I'd be happy then. Um, Not recognizing that the whole system was the problem. Uh, It wasn't that the achievements or the stuff I wanted was bad. It was that the whole wanting was bad, I think, says this. Now, so far, so good. I'm pretty confident that Jesus and the Bible are right on track with this point. I think reality is also on track with this point as well. So, for instance, a few years back, I learned about this fascinating book uh, by a psychology professor called The High Price of Materialism. 
This psychology professor quoted dozens of surveys from all over the world, all of which agreed with this surprising conclusion. I'll put the quote, I think, on your screen. Here's a, a little summary of the point of the book. Extensive multinational research reveals again and again that once people are above poverty levels of income, gains in wealth have little to no incremental payoff in terms of happiness or well-being. However, the central focus of Kasser's treatise, and what makes it new and different, is that merely aspiring to have greater wealth or more material possessions is likely to be associated with personal unhappiness. Think about that point. This is saying that will money, will more money make you happy? According to the psychology professor who had all these surveys, you know, there's really dozens upon dozens of surveys from all over the world, this book reports. His point is, what all these surveys tell us is the answer is no. That certainly it will, more money will make you happier if you don't have your basic needs met. If you're hungry, if you don't have shelter, if you, um, you know, are really risking death or, you know, real privation, yes, then money will make you happier. But once you have your basic needs covered, just to reiterate this point, any more money will not make you any happier. And wanting more money will statistically correlate with being more unhappy. That just seems like the point of the Bible. You shall not covet. It will not work for you. It's not a, an adaptive system of life. But it doesn't make sense to us. We all just think, oh, surely, surely, if my circumstances were at least a little bit better than they are now, if not a lot better than they are now, I would like that. Which of us doesn't feel that way? And I think what Kasser and what the Bible and what, what the Buddha, for what it's worth, are telling us is that that actually is a false lead. We think that's true. It's not true. So if the way to address the gap between what we want and what we have is not by getting those things that we want, maybe the way to address that gap, um, one theory, and this would be the Buddhism's theory, is by dying to what we want, to our desires at all. Just die. Maybe it's desire itself that's the problem. Maybe there's a unique freedom that comes by ceasing to want, to learning what the Buddha called the middle way, of not going to war against our desires, but instead ignoring our desires. And so, as I understand it, a good deal of the practice of Buddhism is formed by trying to learn this thing, to not desire anymore, to uh, approach the problem from the wanting end. I wonder how you feel about that fundamental question. Maybe you're sympathetic to the Buddhist approach, or maybe you're not, but I wonder if you relate to the fundamental question it's addressing. The Bible totally relates to it, but it comes up with, I think, some fairly different conclusions about it. So we get it in distilled form right here in the Ten Commandments, but then we also get it pretty profoundly in places like James chapter 4, which is the second scripture on your program. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So, right on track so far. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. That's actually a different conclusion than the Buddhists would have. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we want something we don't have. We covet. And according to this, that desire, that gap again, wanting something we don't yet have, is what causes fights and quarrels among us, even to the point of killing. Um, the solution here, though, is fairly different than what we've just been describing from this other world system. The wild card that doesn't play into Buddhism, uh, according to this passage, is that there is, according to this, a God who answers prayers. That's actually a fairly uh, important variables to throw into the uh, equation here. Understanding how that's so, that we can connect with this God who actually fulfills desires, doesn't kill them off, but wants them fulfilled on his terms, 
seems to me to be the first step towards a life of fulfilled desires, the very thing that Buddhism cautions us against. We shouldn't want them fulfilled. We should ignore them. I think what James is saying is, oh no, you should want them fulfilled, but on these terms. So if I'm reading James right, here's how he says we can get what we want for what it's worth. The first thing we can do is we can ask God for what we want or need. Sometimes we can feel a little sheepish about doing this, as if we're not sure we have any right to what we seem to need or want. Uh, maybe two months ago, it suddenly blindsided me that our family was actually about to run into money problems. Now, it's not because we don't have a very generous salary. We do have a very generous salary, and I'm hugely grateful for that. But we needed uh, a couple years back to move into a larger house. We had a bigger family. And uh, that's not the easiest thing, as you would know, to pull off in this part of the world. So that took a few miracles to even think, how could we even find something bigger that we could possibly afford to get into? And then through some seeming total miracles, we did. And okay, we're in. That's great. Um, but amazingly, we moved into this big, beautiful, but old house in the area. We were aware that it was big, beautiful, and old when we bought it. But nonetheless, I don't think we'd accurately counted the cost up front of what it would take to get the house into good functional repair. And so we began paying out large checks each month as more and more crumbling things came to light. And eventually we noticed that we were doing that in our bank account. It like showed up, that we were doing that month after month after month. And uh, I, I noticed it a little bit too late. And so I thought, as I noticed, I thought, we're just about to go into total crisis. And I hadn't really been paying attention. Now, on the one hand, when this came to light a few months back, I felt a little guilty. Had I done something wrong? Had we overreached with this house that I just hadn't realized we'd done it, but we had? But what was clear to me as I began to pray about it was whether we had overreached or not, whether I'd made a mistake or not, we did in fact have some real and pressing needs nonetheless, whatever the cause of it was. So I started aggressively asking God, and I asked some friends who actually pray for us to ask God too, and within a week we'd seen some major money miracles, major surprises. They still weren't enough to actually solve the immediate problem, but they were definitely an encouragement to keep, keep it up. We were on a good track. So that encouraged me to keep praying for a full solution to the problem. And even in these last few weeks, I think a full solution to the problem seems to have come just from God, from things surprisingly coming our way. So for the moment at least, you know, crisis averted. So part one of this advice from James, you do not have because you do not ask God. Ask God for what you want or need. But then it seems there's this, this disturbing part two that seems to tie into coveting. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So, hang on a minute. I thought that if we needed things, we were supposed to ask God. But now, evidently, there's this category for asking God and not receiving what we ask for, which seems to put us back to square one. And that even seems to throw some moral judgment on the sorts of things we're asking for, as if Boy, in this case, asking God even shows that we're bankrupt and morally in some way. So what's the deal with that? Are we supposed to ask God or have to, do we have to ask God perfectly or else we're going to be judged and not get what we ask for? Seems like a very complex maneuver. Which to me brings us to point number two. As you ask, praise God every step of the way. Even in your need between the gap between what you have but what, what you want or feel like you need. As you ask, praise him in the process. When we ask God, I think we largely don't know our motives for asking. We don't know if they're pure or maybe they're a little greedy. Who knows? So, for instance, at some points in my life, maybe you're like me, I've had cars with tons and tons and tons of miles on them that are really on the cusp of where they're about to start 
declining and needing repairs so frequently that, frequently that they're just not worth keeping. And I thought, well, perhaps rather than kind of nursing a car like that along, I'd prefer to have a newer model car. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to have? Now, is that realistic needs assessment or is that coveting? Which is it? You know, how would God view that? Hard to say. It's not that God is never going to give us nice things just because, you know, he loves us and he'll give us nice things. That's certainly a plenty of categories for that in the Bible. But we need to find out. So how do we find out which it is? It seems to me that we fill God in on, on the situation. We say something like, God, I've got this car. It's still running. And I want to reiterate, I'm grateful for my old car. Thank you for the car. I don't deserve any car. Thank you for this old car with all these miles on it. It's still running. Thumbs up. Thanks a lot. I don't curse what you've already given me. On the other hand, it's a little on the old side. It's needing its share of repairs. If by some chance you wanted to upgrade me to a newer model car, that would be awesome. I would love it. But either way, I bless you. Sounds like a really bold prayer, doesn't it? All that qualifying. This strikes me, though, at the very least, as different than coveting. And it's entirely based on the attitude of the prayer. So, for instance, I could pray, God, let's just say, this car is a dump. Evidently, you think I'm the sort of person who deserves a dump. Other people, in fact, let's look around the street. Every other car I see, as far as the eye can see from my point of view, is far nicer than mine. In fact, there's a really nice new car right over there that I would love to have that evidently some other person gets, but I don't seem to get. How can I get one of those? Amen. <laughs> what do you think? Option one or option two? I don't know. It strikes me that praise and patience are the key equalizers that keep us from coveting, but, but going to God with our real needs. Um, even as I prayed about the money we would need to continue in our house, I did, in fact, pray something much like that. I said, look, God, if you've got a better plan than the house we're in for us, if I've missed it, I'm up for it. I leave it in your hands. If this somehow was a misfire, you take us where we need to go. But if it's going to be here, I would love it if you could give us the money we're going to need to make it work so we could continue. Now, a number of scriptures address the distinction between prayer number one and prayer number two. So John the Baptist is addressing soldiers who want to know how they can experience the God he's telling them about. And John the Baptist's advice is very earthy. What should we do? This should be on your half sheet and I think on your screen. What should we do? Ask some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people of things you know they didn't do and be content with your pay. Paul, in 1 Timothy, writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. With contentment. Be content with your pay. Now, how do we get this godliness with contentment? That both things would be true. How do we become these soldiers who, at the very least, are content with what we've been given? I think we pray about everything we want or need. Because where we get in trouble is believing that whatever assets we can see around us have to cover our own, not only our current needs, but all our dreams. So whatever money we have, whatever assets we have, is the whole pool of what's possible in our lives. I think if we feel that's true, we start to covet. Because we think, I have limits, because I see my limits. I know the money I have, and I know what I want, and I know these two things don't match. We're right back to the problem that the Buddha talked about. The only way to bust open that equation is to recognize that we're praying to a God who has infinite resources and who loves us. That's the only way I think we can get godliness with contentment. So we pray about everything we want or need instead of just lusting after the things we want or need. We actually go to God with those feelings. Like 
me with a successful playwright, right? I was lusting after the life the successful playwright had, but rather than just lusting about it, I made the good or unfortunate decision either way to take it to God and to say, why can't I have what he has? Which suddenly opens up God to speak back to me and say, actually, I don't think you want what he has. And that could dial me down. So we pray about everything we want or need rather than just lusting after it. Or rather than just worrying about those things, like me with our financial needs. I could just think, oh my gosh, I see the pool of money we have. I see the needs. We're on a collision course here. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. But actually taking that to that God that I'm worrying to and saying, rather than worrying, I'm going to pray. Say, God, what's your plan? I'm sorry, I wasn't keeping close enough, quite close enough track on this. Your thoughts? We, don't, we pray about it rather than lusting after the stuff. We pray about it rather than worrying about the stuff. And then as we pray, we praise God believing that he will, in fact, meet our needs. He is a good God. He will guide us through any desires of ours that would wound us if they were fulfilled. In other words, if there's something bad for us that we're lusting after, God then will help navigate that in a way that we couldn't on our own. So we pray, and we also praise as we do it. And thirdly, I would propose that you thank God again and again for your actual life. You thank God again and again for your actual life. Among the great costs of coveting, if I'm understanding these passages, is that we live in an alternate life than the one we actually have. When we covet, we're living in a fantasy life that we wish we had instead of inhabiting the life that we do have. And happiness can only be found in what is. It can't be found in the fantasy. I could live the life that would be mine if I were just a successful playwright. And I could regard my actual life as intolerable. If I were just him, I could be happy, but sadly... Uh, the only way I could be happy is in a fantasy, which means my actual life is just uh, unendurable. Um, my only hope instead, I think, was to rejoice in things that God was actually giving me. And then to wait and to notice what he's doing for me in that actual life I'm actually living. And finally, give freely and often and in multiple ways. It seems like that's a key way into experiencing abundance from God in the actual life that you're actually living, to give freely and often and in multiple ways. It seems like the antidote to coveting is sort of by doing the opposite of coveting. Rather than saying, I need, I need, I need, and grabbing, it's sort of to give, to give, to give. And that seems to put us in a world of abundance. Um, we actually left out a whopping two of the Ten Commandments in this series. Now you would think, there are only ten commandments, Dave. You couldn't pull off talking about ten different things because this is our last in the Ten Commandments series. But I will, I will fess up, we've only mentioned eight of them. One of the two we haven't mentioned, honor your father and mother, we actually spoke on over the summer, and so we left it at that. We didn't want to do two honor your father and mother sermons in the same year. But I'd like to slip in the other one right here at the end so we can at least get nine of the ten and the other one was, was done. The final commandment we haven't done is actually a fairly famous commandment. You shall not steal. Um, this is one of those ten commandments, sort of like not murdering, that you get widespread agreement about. It's not a controversial commandment. Um, but most people think, yes, not stealing. I'm tracking why that would be an important thing not to do. But that said, you don't get much further thought about not stealing. It just seems sort of obvious that we shouldn't steal. But nonetheless, the rest of the Bible actually does give some further thought to it. Look, for instance, at how Paul thinks a bit deeper about this in Ephesians chapter 4. It'll be on your half sheet and on the screen. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. 
Seems like kind of a surprise, right? So the reason not to steal, evidently, is not just that we're a parasite who's living off of the hard labor of others, and that's not fair, and so we shouldn't steal. The reason here we shouldn't steal is that thieves don't tend to be generous. And so we should quit stealing and should work with our hands so that we can be generous, so that we can give to those in need. It seems like kind of an odd motivation to quit stealing. Like, hey, quit stealing. Are you being generous are you being generous? I don't think so. Quit stealing. Work with your hands so that you can give to those who are in need. As if that sort of giving is the fundamental human need that we don't take advantage of when we're a thief. I once heard a powerful story that seems to apply to this from a friend who'd once sat in on a lecture by this great psychologist, Menninger. This was in the really early days of psychoanalysis. And a student asked Dr. Menninger in this um, lecture that my friend sat in on, what my friend thought was quite a profound question. He said something to this effect. Dr. Menninger, I'm sold that psychoanalysis can help people, particularly at times when we're particularly troubled. But what do you recommend for people who are in deep emotional trouble yet don't have any access to psychoanalysis? Again, sort of in the early days of psychoanalysis. Let's say they live in a small town and, you know, there's no, there's no resources to that effect in that town, or I suppose it could be financial. But so, what if someone has these fundamental needs that only, you know, because you've just given such a profound pitch for psychoanalysis, what if I'm with you? It's really important. Only psychoanalysis could help this person in need, but they have no access to it. What should they do? And uh, according to my friend, Menninger gave that one a good 30 seconds pause. Just sat and thought, didn't respond. And then he looked up and he said this. He said, that person should find someone worse off than they are and love them. What do you think about that? It strikes me as kind of a deep thought. You know, if you need to get better from your own things that are making you miserable, but you, don't, you can't find professional help, what should you do? Well, at least in this moment, the suggestion was find someone worse off than you and love them. And that would be the healthiest thing you, you should do. That giving from your own position of poverty, right? The whole point is this person feels poor. They feel like, I can't give. I'm a mess. I have needs. I, there's no way I could give. And Menninger's point here is, oh no, the only way through your needs is to start giving from that place of need. Give, and you can suddenly find yourself receiving in that way. Um, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need, as if giving is the issue, not taking in that point. Give freely and often and in multiple ways. Now, this could certainly be financial, things like generosity to friends or tithing is something that sometimes comes up in biblical circles. I'm all, I'm all for both of those things. But I think it's also giving of ourselves, as per the Menninger comment. Um, giving uh, our care, our help, our attention, our faith, our prayers for people in all areas, not least of which for them is that they would be connected to the source of all resource in God himself. The Ten Commandments closes, as I've said, with what some entire religions say is the fundamental problem with all humankind. We covet, and so we're miserable. That's the big issue. But the solution in, in the Bible itself is not to say that we need to quit wanting. The solution here is to say that we're offered an incredible opportunity for the rest of our lives be quick to take our wants and our needs to a powerful God who loves us and who answers prayers, as if that's the primary key to contentment. Stand with me, if you would. Let's pray together on that subject.
God, we give our desires to you. Uh, Father God, we give you our dissatisfactions with what we have. Either what we have in terms of stuff or what we have in terms of a life that we wish we had a different life. Lord God, we ask forgiveness for ways in which the sense of strong need that we so often can feel makes us look at what other people have with envy. Wondering why do they get that stuff and we don't. And we do covet our neighbor's life or their stuff. Forgive us for that, God. Lord, we say we don't want to live through somebody else's life. We don't want to assume that somebody else who has what we want is automatically happy. Father God, we want to see you at work right now in our real life, not in a fantasy. So forgive us for coveting right now. Would you do that in Jesus' name?